On this episode of China Unscripted, U.S. companies are funding China's military, while China uses a mock U.S. aircraft carrier for target practice, and what Hong Kong sacrificed for the world. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Chang, and I'm Matt Ganesha. And today we are unpopular, so we have no guests. It's just us. You know, I like doing these every once in a while. It keeps us on our toes. Me you know? too. I like when we play a board game, a fun board game every once in a Why while. Why didn't we play a fun board game today? I suggested Sellers of Catan uh, repeatedly. I thought that was for later, not on camera. Yeah. And it'll probably be good for our gaming channel, which will be fun. But yeah. we do have an interesting uh, podcast today, even despite not having games, right? I do we? That's that's a lot of assumptions to make at the very beginning. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that with a period and not a question mark. That's how you said it. There was no question about it. Yeah, I don't ask questions. I only provide answers. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I am I am here by the worst journalist on the planet. <laughs> no, it seems like you're equivalent to most journalists now. So well, so you're saying I'm big league. Yep, that's what I'm saying. So, anyways, I get in the studio today and. Uh, I'm greeted by Shelley, who is, is screaming and clawing at the walls uh, because she has found a very interesting story. She did, She hasn't told me or Matt much about it. It sounds horrific, but uh, she she's going to... I'm not sure screaming and clawing at the walls. What, I'm maybe speaking I... my truth. Okay, fine. <laughs> With a period and not a question mark. <laughs> there you go. All right, so... I had just opened this Wall Street Journal article called U.S. Companies Aid China's Bid for Chip Dominance Despite Security Concerns. And we aren't talking about Doritos. Nope, we are talking about semiconductor chips. So it says Silicon Valley venture capital firms and chip industry giants like Intel are ramping up deals in China's semiconductor industry, alarming U.S. officials. Now, why is this alarming U.S. officials, Chris? You're throwing it on me? Or Matt, you're the one who gives answers. Why are we making sensitive technology in China, period? No, but, no, no. Because well, I can't ask a question because it's not a question mark. It's not, that we're, it's not that we are making sensitive technology in China. And it is, it is that U.S. companies- They want and, a joint venture. Or they're just giving them money. These venture capital firms, right? They're not doing oh, okay, joint ventures. Right. It's, it they're, is venture capital. They're, they're giving money so that they can make a profit off of these Chinese- Semiconductor. Firm. Yeah, and just so people know, like semiconductors are really important for like all modern technology. That's why we right. had a huge car shortage this last year, right? Mm -hmm. Because we there's a semiconductor chip shortage. So, so essentially, the China's the mainland China's semiconductor industry is like all industries tied to the state and tied to the military with civil military fusion. Yes, this so, is the other problem, right? Right, and so what this means is that. American venture capitalists are funding technology that will in part be used for the Chinese military, which, as you know, if you've read any of China's military white papers, they consider themselves at war with the United States. So we're f literally funding an army, although indirectly, that wants to be at war with us. Someday this technology will be used to kill Americans. And the thing is that China has 
the reason that there's so much investment going on in China's semiconductor industry is that they have a problem right now. They yeah. do not have the advanced technology. They do not have technology as advanced as the US or Taiwan. Taiwan has the biggest semiconductor chip maker in the world, TSMC. So that's actually been talked about as one of the reasons that the Chinese Communist Party may want to take Taiwan sooner. Well, this you know? is because China's whole technological program of advancement has been to steal intellectual property from other countries, other companies. And so that doesn't necessarily yield you the highest quality tech. Or you may be just lagging because how quickly can you right. steal it? Yeah. There, there was a huge problem a few years ago with espionage, uh, corporate espionage at TSMC. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, one of the challenges with high technology like chip making is that you can steal the theory, but it's very hard to steal the practice of it because these machines are extremely sensitive. You know, depending on like the calibration of the machines and a bunch of other factors, like a semiconductor factor might make, say, a thousand chips. And out of those thousand, maybe only 500 of them are made well enough that they can be like that grade of chip they're aiming for. And so the other chips often become like sold as lower grade chips because they're just not perfect like that. And the the level of perfection has to be so so high. You know, a tenth of a millimeter is 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 far too big uh, of, of an error to make. You know, right? maybe the reason they're so sensitive is because these semiconductors are being held to such unrealistic standards of perfection. Yeah, I mean, it's because they're reading too many of these semiconductor magazines. Uh, but at any rate. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you were going for parents or something. I was like semiconductor yeah. beauty and, magazines. Yes. And then <laughs> oh, that's, that, you should have had I, the I beauty magazine. I understood, I understood where Matt was there. coming from. We're yeah. also teaching you about joke craft on this show. Or joke attempts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, but my, my point is like, fortunately, it's not like you can just steal the plans for what a chip design is and then reverse engineer it. Immediately do it. Right. Because like you, you need the, the, the manufacturing equipment. And there's, there's many other things that I don't know the details of. Right. But it's like it's certain technologies are like, like, for example, I learned in, in college physics class how to make a nuclear weapon. But you can FBI, please do not shut us down. But like, it's easy to understand the theory of of how you you know take a critical mass of U two thirty five and and split it and releases energy and calculate that right. But the actual technology into the machinery is extremely difficult, and and to to get the refined uranium is extremely difficult, right? Like you need uh, centrifuges and it's just complicated. As Iran is finding out, right? Yes. And so like, how many countries have nuclear weapons? Very few, like less than a dozen. Even, Even though the understanding of how to make them is, is it's it's essentially taught in high school classroom. Well, college at least, but yes, right. So, like, and I I am at best an amateur at physics, and I I understand how to do it. So there's no doubt that like like any any dictatorship or whatever could figure it out. But again, the amount of money, the amount of uh, resources that goes into it, the extremely specialized knowledge of how to like just take it that last mile. It's extraordinarily difficult. Well, this is why the Trump and Biden administration have put bans on U.S. companies investing in Chinese companies tied to the military. Yeah, and they've also banned U.S. chip makers from selling 
Mm -hmm. certain types of chip technology to Chinese companies. And yet. Yeah. So and what's interesting, too, is that the Chinese Communist Party is really pushing semiconductors right now, which is, I think, why these venture capital firms are seeing this as a opportunity. Right. Make money. Because uh, in the latest five year plan that uh, Xi Jinping brought out in 2020, he talked a lot about becoming self-sufficient in things like semiconductor chips because China is reliant on other countries right now. Mm -hmm. They do not have the technology. Uh, So once, for example, the U.S. banned uh, sales to Huawei, Huawei's business took a huge nosedive because they did not have the technology they needed. They had to buy it from the U.S. And so Xi Jinping was like, we need to become self-sufficient. We need to invest in our semiconductor industries so we don't have this problem while we are also making the rest of the world dependent on our uh, economy and our products this was in the five-year plan it's not a secret yeah. and and what better way for china to be self-sufficient than to do it using american venture capital money yeah i don't want to you know just slander venture capital firms because it's not just venture capital uh you know there are several venture capital firms Lightspeed, Sequoia Capital, Matrix Partners, Redpoint Ventures that have made at least 67 investments in Chinese chip sector companies since the start of 2020. According to the Wall Street Journal, there's not clear how much money went into these deals, but probably it was in the billions of dollars. So at the start of 2020, like this is when the coronavirus is spreading around the world because the Chinese Communist Party covered it up. I wonder if the people behind these deals like ever had a moment of self-reflection where they're like, huh? I wonder, is this a good idea? Intel, the U.S. chipmaking firm, is also backing a Chinese company that is, you know, trying to create these chip design tools, what you're talking about, essentially, the machinery, right? Right. So, yeah, this is, this is concerning. And, uh, you know, the U.S. government is also extremely alarmed and... The Biden administration is, and U.S. lawmakers are apparently talking about trying to pass laws and uh, regulations that will close some of the gaps mm-hmm. that allow these companies to do this kind of stuff right now. I mean, I, I don't really understand how, how do our laws define what Chinese companies are tied to the military? Because if you can't invest in a company that's tied to the military, but all Chinese companies are at least indirectly tied to the military and that the military by Chinese law can co-opt any or all of that technology or any or all of those products, then like, how is that not tied? I don't understand. Are we stupid? Yeah. Well, I mean, were you stupid rich? Yeah. And and that's, you know, that's the thing. That's not true. We are smart poor. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, these venture capital firms, right? Or, you know, Intel- Oh man, being stupid sounds amazing. (laughs) When Intel, when the Wall Street Journal tried to ask Intel about this, they defended themselves by saying, well, that's a very, you know, small portion of our investment. You know, our China investments are only 10% 10 of our global investments. You know, like we don't invest that much in China. Why why don't you talk about the billions of dollars we put into the volcano that we throw children into? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Keeping it burning all the time. It takes a lot of pandas to burn up. I I don't know how volcanoes work. (laughs) 
<laughs> I felt like you were going somewhere with that, and then the pandas came in. Yeah, it was it was probably not the best choice. Stupid pandas. It should have been like, you know, rainforest. Uh, like, we have to use so much rainforest timber to keep the volcano hot enough to burn the children. <laughs> this is Intel's business. Uh, does that count as Remember libel last or week slander? when our uh, podcast went off the rails at the end? Yeah. Well, this is the nice thing when it's just us. It's there. There are no rails. It's just careening around. <laughs> Well, I out mean, of control. I, I feel like we're, Why not? we're playing bumper cars in like a giant ring that's just the three of us like driving around fast and crashing into each other. It's it's a lot of fun. But the point you're making about like the laws, like the main thing is like, you know, it doesn't matter how many laws you make if the people behind these me mega corporations are always trying to find some loophole to do these investments that like with no knowledge of or awareness of the fact that they are helping an authoritarian regime that is building up its military with the purpose of overthrowing the United States. But Chris, it doesn't matter because it's not that much of Intel's investment that's going to China. That's right. They're only going to be a little bit behind the weapons that the PLA uses to kill Taiwanese soldiers and the U.S. soldiers that try to defend them. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of a lot of people who are doing these investments may not worry too much about that because, you know, Maybe they feel that they're citizens of the world. You know, some of these investment firms have said that, you know, these decisions were made by our China affiliates. Like they have different venture capital. Like Sequoia was saying, we have a bunch of different independent firms that all operate under Sequoia Capital. So this this decision was made by the China-based one. So it's part of their company or not part of their company? I think it's technically Sequoia Capital China. So it's still their company. So either either Sequoia is in charge of it and they're responsible for some division being allowed to make these choices or Sequoia Capital is not behind it and should therefore completely divest from it. Yeah, and I wonder who is in Sequoia Capital, China. Like, who are those people? Are they people with links to the Communist Party? Well, you have to have people with, with links to the Communist Party to have a China-based, so, yeah. So essentially, plants from the Communist Party are in these companies telling them to invest in the Chinese Communist Party. Well, I don't know that they really have to tell them to. You're already in China. You came here to invest. Yeah. You know, so that's not really... But like specifically, like, hey, semiconductors, you know, who cares about... Like, so so this week it came out that the Chinese military has created mock-ups of U.S. aircraft carriers that they're using for target practice. Like, is this not clear enough? I mean, I think, I think a lot of these venture capital firms really are more like, oh, well, our mission is to make money. You know, we, we have a fiduciary responsibility to increase the value for our shareholders. Well, I mean, Chris, there was just, you know, duct tape mock-ups of U.S. carriers. I mean, you know, it could maybe mean they anything. Were just, you know, they were just, you know, playing a giant game of paintball or something. Right. It's like when they built that, that replica of the Taiwanese uh, presidential palace near one of their military bases in China and then did drills, you know, taking over said mock-up of... Taiwan presidential palace. But again, like that was just a game. So there's no relevance to anything, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, BlackRock telling us to triple our investments in China. 
or Goldman buying more Chinese real estate debt. Even as the real estate market is imploding. Well, the Chinese Communist Party is in the middle of bailing out the real estate market. Yeah, but they have specifically said that uh, you know foreign companies are not a priority in、mm. that bailout. No, I don't think Goldman needs to be bailed out right now. I think they're buying the debt because they think that the real estate industry、uh, industry in general will always get bailed out. Like this right. is if you can if you can buy it at fifty cents to the dollar, then now is a great time to invest in China while things are low. They're also buying Chinese bonds, right? It seemed from that. Bloomberg article that they are buying Chinese government bonds that are yuan denominated. Yeah, so Chinese bonds are yuan. Here's the thing about buying bonds, right? Like a a government issues bonds when they need to raise money to pay for stuff that the government wants to do, right? Like government raises money largely in two ways: from taxes and from issuing debt, like bonds. Yeah, there are other ways, tariffs and, and whatnot, but like. Those are the two main ways. So if you don't have enough tax money, you issue bonds, and these bonds fund whatever the Chinese government wants to do. Which means that these U.S. companies are taking their investors' money and directly giving it to the Chinese government to spend on whatever the Chinese government wants. That's crazy! Oh my god, man! That's crazy. I know. I know it's loud, but I'm so upset by this. <sighs> Why, why people? Why? They have a fiduciary responsibility. <laughs> but yeah, this is you know this is this is the old saying that you know the capitalists will. Well, who said this? Lenin. Supposedly, supposedly Lenin, Lenin said this. I have not. Capitalists will sell us the rope that we'll use to hang them. Could have been Mark Twain. Could have been Mark Twain. Who knows? Or Abraham Lincoln. Could have been Gandhi. Confucius. <laughs> Gandhi. Was probably Confucius, right? Yeah, but it is. It is. You know, these these people like they don't have any consequences for their actions. I mean, other people will have to pay the price. Any U.S. soldiers who get caught up in a conflict with China, they'll have to pay the price for their giving the Chinese Communist Party、I、money mean, to make before, semiconductors. Even before it gets to the point of a kinetic war, right? We are already paying the price. We That's true. Paying the price with. Uh, COVID nineteen. We are paying the price with what is happening to the U. You know what's happened to U.S. manufacturing. What's happening to the U.S. economy right now? Like this is supply chains. Yeah, the supply chain whole just in time bringing things from Asia. That all happened because we decided to offshore to places like China. And why do we do that? Because of a fiduciary responsibility. You know they could make a lot more money, and、uh, you know something globalization. Well, it results in lower prices for consumers in America, and that part is actually true. It's just that the part that you don't see is like the prices are lower, but Americans, especially the the bottom fifty percent of Americans, are making substantially less money now because of the hollowing out of manufacturing, which has taken away jobs, which. Also, those jobs, those manufacturing jobs, disproportionately are held by lower-income people with lower educations, typically more minorities, right? So that whole manufacturing transition has hurt the most vulnerable Americans. And like, if you used to work in the the U.S. auto manufacturing industry, you would make in 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 like twenty twenty one dollars, you'd make the equivalent of like you know forty bucks an hour. 
right? Sometimes 60 bucks. Like you make a lot of money as a, as a, you know, high school diploma auto worker. But now, you know, wages are, are, have been driven down so much. They're even saying that the new $15 minimum wage is now meaningless because of how much inflation has boosted the price. I feel like, yeah, people pushed, have been pushing for $15 an hour for as long as I can remember. It's been at least a decade, you know, the fight for 15 and, and, and different movements, right? So now, especially now we've seen six plus percent inflation this year, right? Like, yeah, it just it doesn't mean that much anymore. But at any rate, like, you know, whether or not you support a federally mandated minimum wage, I think everyone can agree that the better thing is for the market to drive wages higher than whatever that would be because of the natural market forces where companies are looking for workers and, you know, workers have enough sort of uh, different opportunities and negotiating power to be able to get decent livable wages. And that's not happening and it's been getting worse since the late 90s. Well, now it's maybe happening. Yeah. Well, so actually that's interesting because 2021 we've seen like these worker shortages, right? You know, I was talking to a, a landscaper a couple of weeks ago. He's like, yeah, like I, I just can't hire enough people to do all the jobs that I want done. And this is, you know, like a lot of this stuff is not high skill work, you know, leaf blowing and then whatnot. And like, that's how bad the shortage is. But while wages have gone up, uh, I think, was it wages have gone up 5.8% in the last year, but inflation is 6.2%. So like inflation is still worse. It's like, it's, there's, there's still a, a 0.4 gap that, that wages have lagged inflation despite the worker shortage and you know at a, at a very fundamental level China has a big role to play in this right at a fundamental level the the gradual I mean look it's not just China right that that America has outsourced to and I think it would be disingenuous to say oh well China is the only one to blame and you know in the in the 80s it was Japan uh, making lower cost electronics and and so on. Uh, and and now it's more diverse than just China because you have Southeast Asia and whatnot. But China is still nonetheless a big and very significant part of that. And perhaps the main thrust of that as well, the, the, the drop in American wages has been highly correlated with having manufacturing done in China. And it's not just, you know, uh, low what we call low technology manufacturing, like putting together plushes or even manufacturing steel. But it's also now things like, you know, college educated, PhD educated jobs, like making semiconductors. And that's, you know, a another further hollowing out of the American workforce as, as American venture capital funds, the kind of industries in China that, you know, could otherwise be done in America by college-educated people, uh, you know, uh, advanced degree-educated Americans. Like these jobs are just going to go away. And, and Xi Jinping's plan is to, you know, be, become firstly self-sufficient in all these industries, and then on top of that, to start making the rest of the world depend on those products that they're making. Well, I mean, it wasn't just those products, but the re the idea is that we've already kind of made the rest of the world dependent on Chinese products. We need to continue that even as we are 
self-sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that you often hear the argument from people, this was one of the things about the tariffs that the Trump administration was trying to impose, right? That a lot of the, you know, the U.S. Uh, Chamber of Commerce in China, this kind of stuff, they were all like, well, you know, the American people are going to have to pay the price with higher cost for goods. Mm-hmm. And that is what the... Uh, the that's what the argument was. That's what the focus was on. That well, you know, you're you're going to not be able to get stuff at the dollar store for so cheaply, or you're not going to be able to get stuff at Walmart or Target. Or it would hurt American farmers, but that would be because China was attacking American farmers with their own tariffs, not so much of a natural right. market force. Thing. But but the idea that you know it's good for us to have a low cost manufacturing in China, and if you want to tariff those things, that's disadvantageous to Americans. And I think one of the things is that people in America, a lot of people we've talked to do not like having to buy a lot of things made in China that are, yeah. especially, you know, the kind of things that you get on Amazon marketplace that, you know, the, that are cheap and will break and- Terrible quality. I've gotten things from Amazon that just smell toxic. Or you- Go on Amazon, you look for just something really like a pair of scissors or something or uh, a, a tea kettle, something to boil water. Yeah. And then you see all these different companies that are making the same tea kettle that are obviously all Chinese companies. And you're not sure which one is actually the original company because they're, all, you know, it's probably yeah. one factory. It's it's so difficult to find even an alternative, like even one, like even if you wanted to spend more for something made in the US or made anywhere besides China. Just a lot of times you can't even find it. Yeah, it, there's so much noise, it's difficult to figure out. And there's no law that says that companies have to disclose the origin, the product origin on the internet. Omar, so, so uh, I bought a, um, a desk for our like new studio setup. And, and you saw this as well, Shelley. That like, so I was trying to get something from Ikea and uh, there were supply chain issues and I wasn't able to order from them. I, I bought this one on Amazon. It didn't say it was from China, but I bought it and I got it. And then the, uh, firstly, you could see on the physical product, it did say made in China, which really bothered me. Uh, and on top of that, like if you actually looked at the instruction manual, it was a direct knockoff of Ikea like when I put it together, it was the same like style with the pegs and the screws, every, everything. Like it was exactly the same. Like even the first page of the instruction manual, you're like, oh my gosh, it is such a ripoff it's of Ikea. It's the two Ikea guys, yeah, right? Yeah, we'll put it on screen here. And so, but like I had no way of knowing where it was from. Like it's so, it's so hard. Sometimes and, and, they'll say imported, but they don't have to say where it's imported from. But this one didn't say that. And, but anyway, like- it's it's really frustrating because I've made such an effort to try to get stuff made at a minimum not in China but ideally made in America for all the new stuff I'm buying and it's it's almost impossible and especially if you're getting anything online because there's just no way to know because the companies are I believe intentionally not disclosing the origin of products because they don't have to so they won't because they know if they put a big made in China thing people aren't going to buy it. You know, it's like 
companies that have stuff made in the USA, they all say made in USA, right? Because they know that consumers want that. And if they're hiding where it's from, where do you think it's from? In some cases, the companies themselves, I was buying a desk and I tried to call several different furniture companies to figure out where their products were made from. It just said imported. And I talked to customer service people. I chatted online with customer service people. Nobody had access to that information. Ah. That was the weirdest thing. They were like, oh, yeah, we'll get back to you. And then they got back to me and they were like, we don't know. We don't. That's not in our database. We cannot tell you. I would have to go physically look at the desk or the box the desk came in where it would have to have a country of origin stamp. And like and like if it's an online thing, like you would literally have to somehow go to the warehouse and look at it, which like you wouldn't have access to. I'm not gonna just like let you into their warehouse. And it's not even it's not just tables and electronic appliances. Like the like the other day I like I bought some spinach from my local supermarket. And I was eating, I was like, oh, this tastes a little strange. It was like a bag of frozen spinach. And it tasted a little strange. And I looked at the bag and it said, imported from China. Your frozen spinach? My was... spinach was from China. Was this in a Chinese store? No. Huh. Just a normal a supermarket. A lot of U.S. garlic comes from China, which is also horrifying because- Ginger too. Uh, there is a, you know, there was an investigation, I think, from Financial Times a few years ago that found that prisons, Chinese prisons, had been making their prisoners- Peel garlic mm. for export. It's That's like, where you want your garlic from. It's like the the Xinjiang tomatoes, where they're having like Uyghur slave labor, or I guess they you know call it something like a how dare in, you in, in, involuntary work training no, programs. No, no, it's totally it's a vocational education, and they're all there happily under the watchful eye of a Chinese policeman for their safety. So, so like, like if you buy maybe not like not Heinz ketchup in the U.S., but like a lot of ketchups in you know Russia, Eastern Europe, and that sort of region of the world, a lot not of those just Russia and Eastern Europe. CBC, the Canadian uh, media, came out with this investigation that showed a lot of Canadian tomato canned tomato products and sauces were coming from Xinjiang. Yeah, and they were being routed through companies in Italy, different places. Uh, but like the origin of the tomatoes was from Xinjiang. Why can't we just grow food the US, in America? The U.S. a few years ago under the Trump administration did ban tomato products from Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. But here's the problem. It can be very hard for uh, U.S. customs to figure out where these products come from. Because like I said, with the Canadian products, some of them were an Italian company, right? Yeah, then, they, they know how to hide. This reminds me of the honey from Dubai. Right. A, a country or, or city state that does not produce its own honey. There was briefly a, I don't know if there still is this ban, but for a number of years, there was a ban on Chinese honey because China was using a certain type of pesticide that could have been dangerous to bees or something like that because we were having the whole, you know, bees dying off mysteriously all over the world thing. So the USDA had you know, banned, the U.S. Customs had banned imports of Chinese honey, but then what was happening were these Chinese honey producers were routing their honey through a third country, like Dubai. Mm. Uh, and then it's stamped, you know, made in Dubai honey or coming from Dubai honey. And then that was to invade, to evade the customs. But like with the spinach thing, I just think it's it's so crazy that we have a system where 
instead of like upstate New York, a farmer grows spinach and it gets to the local grocery store. This spinach was grown somewhere in China under who knows what conditions. Frozen, put on a boat and shipped all the way to the other side of the world. And that's cheaper. And that's cheaper. Well, fresh spinach is not expensive, but it's more expensive than frozen spinach. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of crazy. It's insane, the world we live in. And then also you got to think about like, besides all of the like terrible conditions in China and the hollowing out of say, in this case, farming, like think about the the environmental impact of having to ship food halfway around the world, whether it's on an, an airplane or a container ship, right? Like the amount of fuel that they use, a carbon footprint, like it's just such a stupid way to do it when you could just truck it in 50 miles from upstate New York. Like it's so dumb, it's so dumb, but because it's so ridiculously cheap in China and like all these other costs and all these other externalities, whether it's environmental or, or whatnot, well, economies of scale, Matt. Yeah, that's, that's the problem. Well, also, they've built these supply chains over the last 20 to 30 years to operate like this, right? So now if you wanted to, like when we interviewed that guy from Prestige Maritech, the, the mask maker who was talking about how you cannot even manufacture masks that easily in the US anymore because a lot of the equipment was sold off. Yeah. It actually reminds, I, I've been rewatching 30 Rock recently, and there was like an episode where uh, they, they start a factory to build sofas, but American engineers don't know how to build sofas anymore, and so the sofas just come out. Well, what ends up happening is they sell to the U.S. government to use as torture devices. Okay. Because they're that uncomfortable. Th this is but, not, uh, this is an interesting 30 Rock, uh, you know, episode. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's more off the rails than this podcast. Well, no, it makes sense because like when all of this manufacturing is is shipped off to China, we lose the ability to make that. It's not like and this is what the guy at Prestige Ameritech was saying. It's not like just you can be like, "Okay, let's start a factory." Cuz who knows how to do this anymore? Yeah, right. Where it's do you gone. get the equipment? There's, we sold it 20 years ago to China. Right. And there's a lot of a lot of knowledge that goes into manufacturing that can't be fully documented in like a training manual. So, you know, over time, you've had people like a lot of Americans and other Westerners go to China and teach local uh, factory workers and managers how to make the stuff that used to be made in their country, right? And that knowledge is then passed on. And then those Westerners retire or get out of the industry. And then that's it. That knowledge is now been like fully transferred to China and it dies off in that country, the original country. So just imagine all the things, yeah, whether it's masks you can't make anymore. You know, we, we look at, you know, 20 years from now, if this continues or even 10 years from now, it may not even be possible to make semiconductors in the US if all of that knowledge just goes to China. We rely on only China and then we stop having factories in the US. So just that knowledge is gone. And especially if Taiwan, the place that's making the best semiconductors in the world right now gets invaded by China because they have semiconductors that U.S. venture capitalists have helped fund. Well, the good news is that China needs the technology from semiconductors to be able to successfully invade Taiwan, which they can't get until they successfully invade Taiwan. Oh, just watch. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the mock-up of 
the U.S. aircraft carrier that they're using for target practice. They're preparing for that. It's it's a very real thing. Well, so yeah, just this week, a group of U.S. lawmakers traveled to Taiwan. This was, you know, one of those things that wasn't really announced. Um, similar to something that happened back in June, I believe. Um, and, you know, while the U.S. lawmakers are taking a tour of Taiwan, the kind of diplomatic uh, engagement that China hates, they start holding, you know, what did they call it? Uh, Joint uh, War Preparedness Patrol. That's it. Joint War Preparedness Patrol. That would be a good uh, tongue twister before you're about to, you know, go on stage or, or go on podcast. I don't think you need tongue twisters before. I always battle. do voice warm ups before I, you know, get into a fight. I guess that's what Xena did. <laughs> <laughs> She's the warrior princess of my heart. Oh, really? Okay. Explain awesome show. <laughs> awesome show. Oh. And in real life, I think Kevin Sorbo, who played Hercules, and Lucy Lawless, who played Xena, actually do hate each other, perhaps. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. That's real. You know, that show probably was, what, 25 years ago now? Twenty. Probably more than that. Uh, uh, like well, mid-90s? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, that was great. Okay, back on the rails. Yeah, U.S. support for Taiwan. I was uh, the, the training drills. Simultaneously, they're using U.S. Mock-ups of U.S. aircraft carriers as target practice. Uh, it's 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 really heating up in Taiwan. I am really glad to see that U.S. lawmakers did make a trip to Taiwan, though. Yeah. And they visited, among other places, TSMC. The semiconductor. Yes. And they also visited the uh, Taiwan's Ministry of Defense, which is apparently the first time that that's ever happened. Which which made this story about the venture capitalists seems even crazier to me. Like when you have U.S. lawmakers traveling to Taiwan to visit their semiconductor makers, just like how clueless are these venture capitalists? Well, TSMC is also investing in the U.S. They're opening, I think, a plant in Arizona, I believe. So there is there is continued cooperation between Taiwan yeah. and the U.S. on the semiconductor issue. Yeah. So so definitely, while we kind of started this podcast on like the everyone is stupid, we're going to destroy ourselves. There's actually a lot to be pretty positive about. The U.S. engagement with Taiwan is is definitely ramping up. Uh, and part of that is like working with Taiwan to build semiconductors. So there is a, a positive current to a lot of this as well. And working with Taiwan on defense, I think that's really important because yeah. the only way for there to not be a war over Taiwan or an invasion of Taiwan is for there to be sufficient deterrence. Actually, one of the con uh, one of the senators that was went to Taiwan, John Cornyn, he is the co-sponsor of this new bill called the Taiwan Deterrence Act. Mm -hmm. That is basically, uh, you know, a lot of this is military funding stuff, but the the idea is that the U.S. needs to help Taiwan with its defense more than it is. Yeah, well, I mean, as this was happening, um, the Taiwanese Defense Ministry put out a report that said, basically, right now, the PLA has the ability to blockade Taiwan. So they already have the ability to do this. This is, it's, it's not happening because of deterrence, basically, because right now the Chinese Communist Party knows it can't handle dealing with the U.S., dealing with Japan, 
dealing with Australia and India. And I think that's why what Blinken said this past week about the U.S. and allies right. being willing to take action is a good thing to say, mm -hmm. even though it's not quite very, it's not exactly unambiguous as to what does action mean, right? But you would assume that it's more than just a stern warning. Uh, yeah, we we do not appreciate China invading Taiwan. Please don't. Yeah, no, we, I mean, we, we're taking stronger stands on that. And I think one thing that we could do is move, uh, you know, in some sort of seemingly unofficial capacity, start moving more U.S. troops to Taiwan to do things like training and set up um, a equivalent of like military facilities. But obviously, you know, with Taiwan, you call it something else, right? That's That's not as provocative as saying a military base in Taiwan. But like we, we got to have those things and we got to have the, you know, joint military drills with Taiwan that are as effective as the joint military drills that we have with the Quad and other countries. Or, uh, but we just call them something else. The BOBA exchange. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what does BOBA stand for? Oh, that's a California thing for the bubbles and bubble tea. Yeah, I know. But you'd have to come up with some weird acronym because it's the military, right? Like oh, they well, always... BOBA could be the acronym. Yes, exactly. So the, there has to be an Bomb acronym. on okay, this bombardment is already... of... No, this is already bad. No. Okay. <laughs> Bombs over Beijing action. Uh, ongoing buddy action. There we go. <laughs> That's, that's actually not terrible, <laughs> Shelly. Good job. It was going oh, okay at first, and then I think I lost the acronyms lost are it. hard. Yeah, but like that's like I believe that that most of the U.S. government's bureaucracy is actually like, most of the time and money is spent on making acronyms. You wouldn't necessarily be wrong about that. Like, ask anyone who works in government. They're like, yeah, it's basically alphabet soup over here. I, I like whenever, you know, there's a new congressional act and they have to come up with some acronym for it or the, a lot of the military drills have some, it's like the eagle or something. An eagle is something. I, I, I like the, the way they used to name things was more after like people or names, right? Or like, I guess the example I'm thinking of is like the Miranda rights, which was named after a person, right? It's like, you know, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say, you uh, know, yeah, I don't that, that that right, like that's not an acronym. That's from like the '60s, I think. But like you know, it was it was sort of the last 50 years or, or really 40, 30, 40 years that like everything is moved from names to acronyms. Yeah, we could we could name something after um, what's his name, Dean Stockwell. I think he just recently passed on. The guy who played Al in Quantum Leap. Oh yeah, yeah, he recently I've died. never. Seen quantum. You've, You've never, never seen, seen Quantum Leap? No. Wow, I did not expect such a strong reaction. Oh my god! He's just trying to get back home, Shelley. No. Or was he trying to make put right what once went wrong? Where was Quantum Leap? Was it like a network show? Uh, I I don't know. Did it I was... have to have cable to watch this? I don't know. It's like an eighty show. It was a good show, so probably you did have to have cable. Yeah, fantastic. You'd, you'd probably really like it. Yeah. Should we start a channel where we watch Quantum Leap episodes? <laughs> That's probably That's very not. Niche. It's, a, it's a little obscure. A little niche. Yeah, great theme song. 
Wait, will we get a copyright flag? As long as you sing it really badly, I think we're fine. Let's move it back to Taiwan because that's where this whole thing is coming from, right? Like how how do we how do we use sufficient acronyms to work with Taiwan? Sam leaps back in time into the body of Chen Kai Chek and uses it to win the war against Mao. Uh, I mean, uh, like before they even fled to Taiwan, you're talking yeah. about oh, okay to put right yeah. what once went wrong. Well, I mean, you could also argue that he could go back and convince Chiang Kai-shek to establish separate diplomatic relations with the U.S. officially so that as a condition of the U.S. recognizing the PRC diplomatically, which at the time seemed necessary to counter the Soviet Union, but in ex- like the, the, the Communist Party would have to accept as a condition of that, that we would also recognize the Republic of China as its own. This sounds too country. complicated for TV. <laughs> oh, the you're most right for boring TV. episode of Quantum <laughs> yeah. Leap ever. It's, it's all a bunch of what like, if we meetings. establish different uh, diplomatic relations versus like unless or. you got like Daniel Day Lewis to play. <laughs> oh. I'm just thinking. Well, I was just thinking about (laughs) Lincoln. (laughs) I was thinking about Lincoln. No, no, no. I I know you were thinking about Lincoln, and he was great. But well, if it's a modern day Quantum Leap starring Daniel Day Lewis as the as the Sam character, because there were there were episodes like that where he did leap back into. He he looks in the mirror, and it's Chiang Kai Shek. But for the rest of the episode, it's just Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah, exactly. Because that happened in the show. He would leap in back as as women. As different ethnicities, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and there's one al- there's, time, there's always the shot of him looking in the mirror. Like, right? Whoa, whoa. Uh, one time he leapt into a, a paraplegic, I believe, like a guy who had no legs, but he still had legs, so he could like stand up, and that freaked out other people. Yeah, there was an episode. Really, I don't remember that one. Yeah, yeah, because I think like the solution to the problem for that episode involved him like standing up and punching a guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that really is the solution to all of our problems, as long as that guy is Mao. Uh, that's right. Well, I mean, that's how all problems are solved on new Star Trek episodes. Earn new Star Trek. Uh, I'm just lost. That was a good show, too. New Star Trek? Lost. Oh. Yeah. Also never watched Lost. <gasps> You've never I, watched... I, I also haven't ever watched <laughs> You've Lost. never watched Lost? <laughs> I feel like I've failed them. I yeah. don't... Was this happening? I yeah. It, it was about a time traveling island. Come on. I remember. Crazy. I remember Lost being really popular. I just hadn't watched it. Yeah. At any rate, Taiwan. You got to really commit to that, Matt. I, I did have to commit, Sam. I hope you leap back in time into Matt. <laughs> Wait. So what it, happens when he leaps back in time? Does it then change the time? Like, is this now a separate? timeline it doesn't really go into that quite but like basically he has to f- put right what once went wrong i think it just fixes it shelly it just it's fixes fixed. history yeah there were some touching moments uh-huh. in that show okay so it's not like that time travel show that nbc had a couple years ago where they kept branching off into different no they don't go mm-hmm. they keep it nice and simple because they started messing with the timeline and then suddenly everything was different well, as the show goes on, spoilers for Quantum Leap, everyone. <laughs> uh, as the show goes on, you get some sort of sense that perhaps there is some divine will 
behind everything the protagonist is doing. And then there's the implication that there might be some kind of demonic will behind a separate group of people leaping through time to put wrong what once went right. Dun, dun, dun. Hmm. So it's like time traveling person of interest, but with God instead of AI. There is an AI. Wow. Okay. After almost an hour of like very depressing talks about China, I like reminiscing about Quantum Leap. Speaking of depressing, Hong Kong. Uh, well, this particular thing was, was actually not that depressing. Like it's, we, we had an amazing time. Uh, how many years ago was it now? Seven. Seven years ago when we were in Hong Kong for the Umbrella Revolution or the Umbrella Movement. I don't think that was ever settled, what uh, people preferred to call it. Occupy Central. That, that, that didn't work. That was the interesting about it. Uh, there was like sort of like the older organizers who were trying to create this Occupy movement. Yeah, that was the, the original idea. They had already planned to do this. It was called Occupy Central with Love and Peace or something like that movement to, uh, you know, occupy the central business district. Because Occupy Wall Street had been such a rousing success. Yeah. Well, but I mean, like, so the what happened is that the, the Communist Party had basically promised Hong Kongers that by a certain year, and I think it was 2017, they were going to get the right to directly elect they, they the chief executive. They kept moving it back. They moved it back and then they basically canceled it. And then Hong Kongers protested. And then- Well, wasn't it that in 2014, they said, okay, we'll let you choose between the three candidates we select. Right, that was it. That it was essentially gonna be kind of like what they do with the People's Congresses where they're like, you can pick, but we have picked the people who are you allowed to pick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, the initially there was like this Occupy Central with peace and love idea. But then basically the young people of Hong Kong just kind of took it over, did their own thing, and it became something completely different. Essentially, they had to... The there were students like high school and college age students who started protesting in late September, and it got to the point where the police tear gassed people, which was unheard of in Hong Kong, right? And at in 2014, <laughs> it was unheard of in Hong Kong. So, end of to September, pe police tear gassed a group of protesters, many of whom were high school students. People were enraged and took to the streets and estimates of like eighty to 100,000 people in Hong Kong taking to the streets, which is also fairly unprecedented. There had only been one major protest under CCP rule in 2003 that had about half a million people come out. Mm. So against Article 23. So that was the only previous big protest. So this was, you know, 100,000 people came out on the streets enraged about the fact that the police had fired 87 tear gas uh, grenades and then hey. I know, like looking back at that, right? That's wow. like how many how many they did in half an hour by the yeah. end of twenty nineteen. But that was the tipping point where after the, all those people came out on the street, people kind of stayed, and so the Occupy Central people essentially were like, "All right, we're doing this now." Yeah, and we and we we were there. We we actually spent a night in uh, one of the tents. It was very rainy that was, night. Yeah, sleeping in a tent in a wet 
A wet tent in a suit was not fun. Yeah, on on concrete, because we were on a freeway. We truly suffered more than anyone else. Are we not heroes? (laughs) (laughs) Or are we dancers? Is that, please tell me that's a quote from something. It's a song. Well, it's are we human or are we dancers? Okay. Actually, I do remember very clearly getting the phone call from Alan, who was like, you guys should go to Hong Kong. And yeah. being like, that's what? Because this was about two years into the show. We had never really traveled anywhere. And I hadn't been working on it for two years. I think I had only started helping you out in like 2013. Yeah, yeah. And Matt had not really been involved by that point. Right. That wow. was the first time Matt was involved because you came as the field producer. Yep. And Alan, who suggested this trip, came as our camera guy. And I remember paying for my own ticket. To Hong Kong, like it, this was very bootstrap. We had no money. Yeah, we had sixty six thousand subscribers. This just seemed like a wild idea. But do you remember going to Dim Sum in Flushing with Alan? Yeah, and yeah. Matt. Yeah, and we kind of came Did up a with a training this. montage. We came up with the idea to do it. Uh huh. And then we were on a flight a week later. But in between, we filmed a training montage of you two that we could not do now because we used the Wong Fei Hong music. Oh, and that probably be flagged. That or would totally be flagged now. But we used the Nair Dang Zichang music to have you know you as if you were training to Hong for Hong Kong. Yeah. And then we. We filmed part of it on the plane to Hong Kong, too. Remember this? Yeah. And then we had basically held it because we didn't want to tell anybody we were going, just in case, for some right, reason. Right, yeah. Yeah. And then we published it when we landed. It was a crazy, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was amazing to, for the first time, really get out of the studio and, you know, see really kind of like the front line of people fighting against the Chinese Communist Party. And it was a very different experience than in 2019. Yes. Yeah. And it, the whole love and peace thing, it was very much this like kind of, it actually did, the energy reminded me of the earliest days of Occupy Wall Street. I didn't see a single person with a crystal in Occupy Sun. Oh. There, there's a certain energy of this like youthful, hopeful kind of, you know, we're all in this together kind of feeling and And like deteriorated much more quickly in occupy wall street yes it did it deteriorated very quickly in occupy wall street but i but i remember i remember the feeling it's and it's and it's kind of hard to describe It, it 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 also in a weird way reminds me of i was just finished reading um george orwell's homage to catalonia and when he first went to to fight like all of the soldiers had this like this spirit this is like his memoir of fighting in the Spanish, in the Spanish Civil, Civil War. War. So this yeah. was early 30, 1937. Like just this kind of spirit of camaraderie and like we're all, you know, in this together. Like a lot of like foreign volunteers came to fight in this war, to fight against fascism. It, it even reminds me of, you know, the stories I've heard about the, the early days of the Tiananmen Square protests, which lasted for, you know, over a month before the no, crackdown was- happened. Two, yeah. I mean, it was um, almost two months. Yeah. yeah, and so like, there's just this, this, this energy, this vitality, this love, this camaraderie, uh, and this spirit of like, we can do this, standing up to this authoritarian, this, this fascism, this like, you know, evil bully, uh, and it was a, it was a really, 
interesting and, and, and heartwarming uh, place to be. I mean, I think we really genuinely kind of fell in love with the spirit of the Hong Kong people. Yeah, I which mean, is, I mean, it was, it was, that's why I was very sad when, after the, what, 89 days that it lasted. 79? 79 or 89. The, you know, the bulldozers came through and demolished everything. Mm-hmm. But there was, yeah, there was a spirit of, you know, wanting to protect the students, first of all, that I think was very... Mm-hmm. Because we talked to a lot of people who were like, you know, I'm really the Hong Kong students. They're our future. We're here to protect the students. That was very reminiscent of Tiananmen Square. Yeah. Actually, because the students started protesting and then people started coming out to support the students. Right. Right. And then also people, you know, the first video we made, right, of uh, the dangerous weapons of the Hong Kong protesters, which was essentially oh, about yeah. people building chairs and benches so the students could do their homework. Uh, you you might be protesting against an authoritarian regime, but you got to get your math done, you know. Uh, I believe it's called maths in Hong Kong. Probably. They're uh, wrong about that, though. But anyway, go on. Uh, I mean, anyway. I've uh, totally derailed you. I Yes, because now I'm thinking about the trash cans that say come on them. Yes, that is that was a weird thing. Yeah. Hong Kong has a lot of cum dumpsters. <laughs> Oh, no. Are we allowed to say that? It's technically true. They have a lot of trash cans that say things like trash come recycling, like C-U-M, because it's an old, you know, it's yeah. an English term that nobody uses anymore to say and or with. Yeah, so, it does not mean come, like, come here. N- no, yes, right. it doesn't or mean Or any that. other meaning, yeah. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> I was talking about the beautiful spirit of the Hong Kong people. Uh, but... In a way, this makes sense because the other thing I was going to talk about is their sense of humor. Yeah. Remember going to the Mong Kok protest site and they had stolen the police barriers essentially and lashed them together to protect the site. And then they had put a bunch of photos of Xi Jinping holding an umbrella. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Illustrations, like cartoon versions of Xi Jinping uh, holding a yellow umbrella. Yeah, I remember taking a photo standing next to like one of the big Xi Jinping cutouts. Yeah, they with like had, Xi Jinping holding an umbrella. Right. Mm-hmm. So they had taken a photo of Xi Jinping holding an umbrella, which had made a big splash at the time because he was holding his own umbrella and not having some lackey hold his umbrella for him. Uh, and they had, Man of the people. Yeah, and they'd basically, you know, photoshopped the umbrella yellow. And then that was all over the place. But one of the protesters explained to us that, you know, the police can't really tear down the barricades that have Xi Jinping holding an umbrella. Because then they'd them. have to tear down images of Xi Jinping. Yeah. yeah, so it was just an example of just the type of uh, sense of humor. And, you know, the Lenin walls that had all those post-it notes. Yeah. People having messages of support and all this different art up that was very... Didn't you... Wasn't there some from that anime Death Note or something where somebody... <laughs> I vaguely remember something having to do with Death Note. It was like they had um Communist Party official name in, in the book. In the book. Uh, Death Note was a uh, anime about simply a book, a Death Note that if you wrote somebody's name in it, they would die. Sounds really cheerful. It it was it was not a cheerful no. show. But, Very good though. But you know, just lots of like cultural pop cultural references and just funny. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people remember the Mr. and Miss little characters because I think that was mostly a British thing, but they were very popular in Hong Kong. Hmm. So they had. Like Little Mr. Protester or mm-hmm. Little Miss, you know, like as the protesters. Yeah. And I remember that's where we first met 
Joe Feng Suo, a Tiananmen Square massacre survivor. Yes, and he talked a lot about how it reminded him of Tiananmen Square. Yeah. Uh, and uh, now Joe Feng Suo is blocked from ever going back to Hong Kong. As is are we. Well, we haven't been officially blocked. Joe tried to get in and they refused him at the border. Huh. Which is fortunate for him in a way. Yeah. Yeah, he tried to go in 2019. Oh, okay. That would have been okay. When we right. were there. So this was before the national security. Yeah, this was law. this was right in that first few weeks after the for 1 million person protest had happened and we had traveled to Hong Kong immediately. This is in 2019. In 2019. And then Joe had tried to go to Hong Kong and then they blocked him. Yeah. Because uh, I remember texting with him essentially <laughs> and mm -hmm. it was the middle of night in Hong Kong. And right. No, he was like, I wish I could be there now. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I love Hong Kong. It was an amazing city. Sadly, I think I do have to say it was an amazing city it's, as it's, it's being changed a lot. I mean, choked to death. On our locals community page, uh, I've been posting some photos of our trip to Hong Kong, and I had this moment where I was like, I probably should not post this photo of our 2014 fan meetup. Yeah. In case it somehow gets like the people in that photo in trouble in the future somehow, you know? Mm -hmm. When we were there in 2016, we had a fan meetup where we did this uh, mannequin challenge, which was a oh thing going gosh. around this time. And it was like this whole Matrix thing. It was really cool, but we took it down because we were concerned about the safety of everyone in that video. Yeah, that was actually an amazing job by Alan. That, that yeah, video. that you cannot see anymore. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully, some of you saw it before we had to take it down. Yeah, yeah, maybe someday we'll be able to put it back up. That's that's the that's the goal. Some, that's when someday we know there's a there's a bright future ahead. As soon as Sam leaps back into time and occupies the body of Carrie Lam, <laughs> <laughs> Hong Kong should be free. <laughs> Well, I mean, what are you saying, Miss Lam? <laughs> we'll occupy the body of Xi Jinping, and then Xi Jinping can just take an early retirement to the countryside and oh, eat some honey. Gonna, that wouldn't not, help. That that's would be not going to help anything, though. Like if Xi Jinping leaves, it, just, they're just going to replace what if, him. What with... if Xi Jinping declared that Hong Kong should stay politically independent? I think he would be purged from the party. Yeah, he would yeah. definitely be Zhao Ziyang. Oh. The best thing would be if Sam leapt back into time into Karl Marx's body and just didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and then so many things would be solved. Well, I don't uh, know because somebody else could have come up with. That's right. He was like those was ideas were already right. around. Uh, right. He was commissioned to write the Communist Manif Manifesto. Manifesto? What, what, yes. One <laughs> of the interesting things of having. That's the real death note. <laughs> We had uh, Josh Phillip on our podcast a few times to talk about the history of communism. And what was so interesting about that is how it goes back like the 17th century and like all of these like different sort of communist movements and the, the sort of proto-communist ideas behind the French Revolution and like- Well, even Rousseau, the philosopher, was these ideas, essentially. Yeah. So anyway, Mao could have picked them up from anywhere. So it's just, it's not enough to just- Go back in time and occupy Karl Marx. You have to occupy everybody. It is not enough to be not communist. One must be anti-communist. I feel like we're getting into something here, which I don't really want to get into. 
But I, I would say that that um, there is an increasing awareness now of the danger that the Chinese Communist Party faces in part due to their vast overstepping in Hong Kong. And if there's anything good that's come out of the horrible way they've treated Hong Kong, it's that there is a lot more recognition of the problem of the Chinese Communist Party. And while venture capitalists and, you know, investment firms like BlackRock are not willing to do the right thing, a lot of Americans and a lot of people around the world do want to do the right thing. And they don't want to buy made in China. And they they don't want to put their money with companies that are doing this sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, I think that is at least, that gives me a lot of hope. Well, the whole reason that China is pushing the invade Taiwan thing now is because previously they were pushing, uh, you know, one country, two systems, just like Hong Kong. Right. And they can't do that anymore. Well, when we went for the Taiwan elections in 2020, early 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pre-pandemic. They, yes. I actually do remember being a little nervous, though, as we were in the Taiwan airport, the Taipei airport, because I was like, could be here already, you know. I never, I did not get that oh. sense from you about it. Well, I don't think I said anything, but I was thinking about it because, you know, Taiwan had such a bad experience with SARS. And there I was in the airport just taking all these big, deep breaths. I was like licking all the mascots and everything. It was yeah, a really yeah, bad yeah. idea. Licking yeah, licking all the poles in the airport. And you didn't say a thing, Shelly. <laughs> so my point was that we talked to a lot of people who were saying, yeah, that the Hong Kong situation really influenced their vote. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so before uh, pre Tang Wen, when Ma Ying Zhou was uh, in the KMT were in charge uh, in the mid 2000s, the previous really, president of yeah, Taiwan, and it really seemed like they signed these trade agreements, right? Mm-hmm. It really seemed, although people in Taiwan did not like that, and that led to the Sunflower Revolution and a bunch of things, but uh, it seemed like they were going to go along the path of, oh, well, we'll just do business first and open up that. And then slowly we will become absorbed mm-hmm. into mainland China. And then th- that is no longer the case. Yeah. And then the U.S. or no other countries in the world ever would have been involved or right. talking about we have to defend Taiwan. Because if they don't want to. So, know, if yeah. yeah, as you were saying, man, if anything, the problem is clear. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, I think the Hong Kong people knew in some ways that what they were doing essentially was sacrificing themselves. Some of the protesters we talked to were like, we know we're going to go down, but Mm -hmm. we want to do as much as we can to take the CCP down with us. And if that doesn't work, we we want the world to understand. And just to touch on this briefly, I think an example of this being the case is, well, let's let's take a look at the NBA, Uh, you know, the whole Daryl Morey controversy when he tweeted in support for the Hong Kong protests. And then that caused a whole like craven, you know, kowtowing by the NBA. And now you have Ines Cantor of the Boston Celtics doing like this whole thing about talking about, you know, this week he talked about organ harvesting yeah. in China. Like it's it has become public in a way that the Chinese Communist Party desperately was trying to prevent from happening. And, and the CCP really made a mistake. They kind of shot their shot already with the Daryl Morey thing. You know what I mean? They already tried to pressure the NBA as much as they could. 
the NBA kind of came out of it being like, well, we're not going, there was, you know, a shakeup, Daryl Morey resigned, but in the end, the NBA didn't end up completely buckling mm-hmm. to the Chinese Communist Party. And, and think- now Anna Cantor is saying all this stuff, and he's not breaking any NBA rules. He's just wearing lots of colorful sneakers and, you know, tweeting, right? So what can they do to him? Mm-hmm. And and protesters are coming to his games, and so they're getting on camera, like holding signs and stuff. Yeah, and so, you know, he said he's met with and Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, mm-hmm. and they have said that they're going to let him do it, but he said... I wish they would support me. You know, I wish that they would say something about China, but they're not gonna. Yeah. So I'm gonna do it. Yeah. Well, anyway, good good on him. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's great to see people like Ennis Cantor taking a stand, knowing that he may have to do it completely alone. And that's I mean, that is real courage, knowing that he might just have to do this whole thing alone and be shunned by so many people in the NBA. Or, you know, brand partners, sponsors, yeah. you know. Yeah, he's putting millions of dollars on the line. Yeah. He said uh, in the CNN interview with Christian Amapor, he was like, I don't want your endorsements. <laughs> I don't want your money. And, uh, you know, talked about how China silences people with money, essentially. Yeah. But, well, and then we have the venture capital firms. And then we have the venture capital. You know, I like the arc of this podcast. It was very much like an episode of Quantum Leap. <laughs> it started off with a problem, and then you know things we found are, hope. We found hope. Things are things. Are we trying we're to putting write right what, what once went wrong? Well, we're still in the middle of trying to do that. I feel like so it'll be one of the two part episodes that I liked so much. <laughs> Okay, well, I wasn't expecting that, but I think that's a nice note to end on. I think so. I'll, I think I know the best note to end on. Thanks for watching China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Jung. And I'm Matt Ganesha. We'll talk to you next time.